Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. and welcome to Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Lucy Dallas, the arts editor of the TLS. Regular listeners will already have noticed that I am neither Stig nor Thea, your usual hosts. They are unaccountably unavailable this week, so it's down to me and the fiction editor, Toby Lishtig, to talk through what's in the paper and the literary world this week and mess things up generally for Stig and Thea as we see fit. Toby, any ideas? I suppose if we just plown and do our thing the mess will follow in our wake oh. <laughs> or not or we'll do a perfectly formed oh, program yeah. there is i was that. thinking we could try and set it up so that they had to do next week in rhyme or haiku or oh, god yes yeah do you know Le- what i mean get yeah, people yeah to... leave the listeners expectant for something uh, impossible to live up to what can we do well we could we could ask whoever's listening to tweet in and um demand that they do it in rhyme or haiku or limerick limerick Okay, I think Limerick. Nice. There we go. Next Good. week's podcast will be brought to you in Limerick. But before that, I have to urge you to subscribe. Luckily, this is a great deal, so I have no problem giving you the hard sell. If you use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer, you get five issues for five pounds or dollars. And I should also remind you that you can buy TLS books and even calendars or mugs at our new shop. Just go to our website, e-tls.co.uk, and follow the link. I had a coffee in one of those mugs this morning, actually. In a TLS mug? In a TLS That's mug. That's very on brand. Yeah, I'm nothing if not on brand. It was great. Um, they're, they're very uh, narrow and tall, which means they preserve the heat, which is something I massively approve of. Okay, that's good. And you, that, it doesn't, they're not described like that. So this is extra yeah. invaluable information uh, that everyone's getting. I think, it's the, I think it's essential information. Excellent. So there you I go. I totally, totally recommend them. There's a word for that in marketing. That's or that's like a sort of advertorial. Yeah. But since it's ours, I I'm fine. comfortable with that. All right, good. I'm glad. This week, we'll be looking at the work of J.M. Coetzee and how it relates to Jesus, or not. We'll talk about the changing attitudes towards Muslim women in the veil. We'll get the lowdown on the recently opened T.S. Eliot archives you've been hearing about. And we'll have a beautiful poem, If All This Did Begin, by Geoffrey Wainwright, to round it all off.
We have a focus on the Middle East in the paper this week, looking at Israeli politics, Sharia law, and also how Muslim women are viewed in the West. And I say viewed advisedly, as our reviewer, Sanam Maha, makes the point that Muslim women are seen, in fact their appearance seems to be of great concern to everyone, but they are rarely listened to. She reviews two books for us this week, From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11 by Shakira Hussein, and It's Not About the Burqa, Muslim Women on Faith, Feminism, Sexuality and Race, edited by Mariam Khan. Sanam joins us today on the line from Los Angeles. Sanam, many thanks for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Um, and also for this for this brilliant, thought-provoking piece. Um, you start it off with the story of John Simpson and his cameraman famously getting into Afghanistan wearing burqas. Can you tell us why you started with this story? What, what does it reveal about how people were thinking about Muslim women at that time, which I think was just after 9-11? Yeah, it was just after 9-11. It was, I believe, 10 days after the attacks on September the 11th. I was dealing with two books that referred to or used 9-11 as this defining moment for how people in the West, specifically in the UK, US and Australia, viewed or thought about Muslims in the recent past and how a narrative has been shaped about Muslims. Um, It's been two decades since the 9-11 attacks and I was curious to look back and to see what we might have missed at the time or sort of smaller details. I think we tend to talk about the attacks or everything that's happened since in broader terms. And I wanted to look back and sort of see what was going on at the time, how is this being covered, how is it being talked about, what kind of blowbacks were we experiencing at that time for Muslims, especially living in the US or the UK. So what I was seeing at the time was there was um, stories about how people were very confused about what was going on at the time. I think for a lot of people, this was a very rude introduction, a very brutal introduction to people in another part of the world that they perhaps hadn't had to think about. And suddenly they were in a position where they were wondering, Why do these people hate us? Why are they threatening us? And there was this um, story that I read about how a lot of bookshops in the US were mentioning that their Islam sections were suddenly being sold out. Books were flying off the shelves because people were curious about Muslims and about this entire group of people that were suddenly in the news. So when I read that anecdote about the BBC's World Affairs editor and his cameraman sneaking into Afghanistan wearing those blue burqas, and I read his quote about how the burqa gave them the freedom to disappear. It just tied so neatly into what seemed to be the common or default position at the time when people were dealing with Muslims. There was curiosity, but there was also suspicion. So when he says something like, you know, when we put on the burqa and we just disappeared under it, it was really striking to me how that notion of disappearing, how that notion of becoming something else, how the burqa renders you Uh, to be totally different from whoever you are. That's how it's viewed. When he says disappear, it's almost as though there isn't a person there. Absolutely. And I think that we tend to be suspicious. We're living in a world where we're suspicious of people who wish to have the freedom to disappear. Even when we come across somebody who, for instance, isn't on social media, we tend to see that as a little bit strange. So when you have somebody talking about, I covered myself up and I completely disappeared and there's freedom in that, The question that follows is, well, freedom to do what exactly? And I think that's seen as slightly threatening. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it leads very sort of neatly back into something that was in the news a lot recently with Boris Johnson's quote about, you know, why would women choose to wear this garment 
that makes them look like letterboxes or bank robbers. I mean, that's the characterization. There is suspicion and there's confusion around it. And it was interesting to me to see how even two decades later, that still persists. You also mentioned um, that that back around that time in 2001, um, Laura Bush, the first lady, she gave a radio Mm. address about women in Afghanistan. In your piece, you say, and in fact, the invasion was conflated with a feminist mission because they were saying we're we're going to liberate them so that they can throw off their burqas. Yet when the real women who lived there failed to throw them away in delight, you know, at their liberation, Mm -hmm. people were very confused by this. Why Why aren't they doing this? Why are they still wearing them? Well, I think that that confusion still exists, definitely. At the time when Laura Bush did the radio address, the address was about, you know, women halfway across the world, in this part of the world that has attacked us, these women and their children are being brutally oppressed by the Taliban. There was very little room for discussion about the ways in which the Taliban had come to power in the first place, the situation in Afghanistan that made it very easy for them to do that. It was easier to share images and stories of Afghan women talking about how they weren't allowed to work, they weren't allowed to get education, things like that. But the burqa became the focus of all those discussions and sort of a manifestation of the ways in which you can take away rights. And... I think that at the time, when you keep sort of pushing this idea of these women need our help, you're taking a war that existed for revenge and for retribution, and you're reframing it as a war that is just. Who can argue with a war that exists to help women and children? It's very difficult to do that. So suddenly you have, you know, we're going into this country, we're helping the women, and the money shot that you need in that instance is an image of those women that you're there to help, throwing off this garment that was a symbol of their oppression. But unfortunately, when you turn up over there and you haven't really had a discussion with the women you're trying to save, you haven't really talked to them about, well, we're here bombing the hell out of your country. We turned up with boots on the ground. Is this really the best recipe for change? What exactly do you need to make them part of that conversation? That didn't really happen. And I think that we're still having those discussions now about how Afghan women are left out of the equation when we talk about what's next for them. Um, So when it sort of becomes all about the superficial change and you're so heavily focused on seeing the women rather than hearing them, there's something very wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And because you give us as an example, there's the famous photo of the Afghan girl whose name we learn much later. There was a very famous Mm -hmm. photo of the orphan refugee looking straight at the camera with her head lightly covered. And it was mm-hmm. used for all sorts of fundraising purposes. And then the photographer went back to find her and only at that point found out her name, which was Shabat Gula, wasn't it? Talked to yes. her for the first time. And she said the burqa was a beautiful thing to wear and that life under the Taliban was better, which was not what anybody wanted to hear. Didn't, no, didn't, not at all. didn't fit in with the narrative at all. And, and that, that's part of the shift, you think, of the perceptions of Muslim women in particular from being sort of helpless victims to being figures of suspicion, like why, why aren't they throwing the burqas off? Why aren't they thanking us? If we take a look at recent cases in the UK of the so-called jihadi brides, whenever we've seen um, stories about them, someone like Tuba Gondal or Shamima Begum, um, you'll always see the stories accompanied by photographs before and after. So in the images before, you have these young women taking selfies, they're wearing makeup, they're with their friends. And then it's always contrasted with these images where they're wearing a burqa, they have a gun in their hand, um, these sort of very threatening images that come out with these stories. And I think that when you 
look at that, when you see that kind of contrast and you, you say, well, what kind of woman would do something like this? What kind of woman would travel halfway across the world to be in a place or to be with somebody that threatens her friends and family back home? I think in the last decade, we've really seen how the war on terror has come home to roost in the UK, the US and Australia. We've seen the results of not creating systems that make people feel like they're valued or a part of the discussion. When they feel like when they're on the outside looking in when people make decisions about them, what they're allowed to have or to participate in. And I think that when the discussion revolves around, well, why would you do something like this? Or there's suspicion or there's anger, but there's not really an interest in hearing from the people or in interrogating what kind of systems they exist within. Or in the case of the Afghan girl, to talk about, well, we landed here to try and tell you how we're going to save you. But perhaps what you need is something different. Perhaps what you need is greater than what you're wearing, the clothes that you have on. Perhaps we need to have a discussion about, well, what exactly, how can we help you? How can we be a part of this? What do you need from us right now? When that doesn't happen, I think there's just confusion when you're looking at somebody who's behaving in a way that you think isn't correct. And I think there is definitely confusion about, well, what kind of woman would want to put this garment on and go live in this part of the world to deny all of the opportunity and the access that her home country gives her and then to behave in a way that sort of rejects all of that. There are some instances you've, you've mentioned where the burqa has been embraced by, by Western cultures, you know, instances of commodification or whatever. I just wondered if you could mm-hmm. say a little bit more about that because I thought that was a particularly interesting shift in the piece. Well, I mean, it's a question of, you know, when are we okay with seeing a woman dressing, a Muslim woman dressing how she wishes to. And I think we're okay with seeing that when we stand to benefit from it. You can make um, money out the, of it. <laughs> absolutely. And I think, I mean, there was a figure from 2015 uh, when this sort of really started to pick up. The amount that Muslim women spent on quote unquote modest fashion was $44 billion. That's in 2015 alone. And That's I think it. since then we've really seen um, on the high street with high fashion brands, how they're sort of embracing this idea that of modest fashion, of giving a woman exactly the kind of clothes that she wants to wear. And we seem to be quite all right and very comfortable with it in those instances. Yes, yeah, so as you say, if you can make money out of it. But do, do you think even if the reasons are quite cynical, do you think the end result might be greater understanding of diversity and greater understanding more generally of Muslim women? Or do you, do you think it's just simple, <laughs> cynical commodification with only profit as the answer? I think, unfortunately, it is more of the second. Um, if we, for instance, just look at the US, there was an instance back when Donald Trump was campaigning when Hillary Clinton's campaign, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a Muslim couple, they had lost their son, and there was a Muslim couple that delivered a speech, and the husband was there, and he was talking about Donald Trump, and his wife was standing there next to him, and she was quiet throughout, and she had her head covered, and she was standing there silently, and they delivered a great speech about how Trump really sort of didn't value the people that he was talking about, and all Trump had to do to undo that entire thing was to say, well, why was the wife standing there so quietly? I mean, she didn't really seem to say anything. Perhaps she wasn't allowed to. Mm. And it was that image of the Muslim woman standing there, her head covered. She really doesn't have to talk so publicly about losing her son. Um, She didn't, 
I mean, this wasn't an instance where really we required her to say anything, but Trump just had to say that one thing and it undid everything. It was the visual, as you say, again, it's the visual symbol. That visual symbol is just so strong of that Muslim woman standing there, her head covered, not saying anything. Despite the fact that his wife stands next to him and doesn't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that is is noticed, but not for the same reasons. Can I just ask, finally, because you say at the end of your piece, one of the books is about talking to Muslim women about a range of a range of things, um, being a model or being depressed, being in the public eye, losing their virginity, the range of responses they got. And you ask whether anyone is listening to these voices. Do you think they are now beginning to be heard or or not? I think they are definitely beginning to be heard. I think social media really helps to amplify those voices. My experience of reading this sort of catalogue of these stories by these Muslim women, honestly, I was reading it and I just thought, well, really, the subtitle here could be Muslims, they're just like us. I mean, these are these are issues that any young person today is dealing with. Questions of identity, about faith, about just mental health, about divorce, about relationships, things like that. And I really have to wonder, well, who is picking up this book and who is the reader here? If it's somebody who subscribes to something that Boris Johnson says about, well, why would a woman choose to look like a letterbox or a bank robber. I don't know that those people are willing to have that conversation just yet about Muslims and how they're perceived, how you contribute towards a certain perception that may be very biased. And so I really have to wonder in this case, I mean, it's a great book, the essays are great, but really who is it speaking to? And I think when you have this idea that it's up against, an idea that has immense political value, how loudly do you have to speak to dismantle something like that? And what do you need to say to do that? Okay, well, I'm sure your brilliant piece will go some way towards, I hope, making people think a bit more about that. Thank you very much for joining us, Sanam. Thank you for having me. It's a really fascinating piece. It's really, yeah, I found it very, very arresting. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. yeah, this idea of, sort of the, the burqa as a shorthand for all these things, I, th- I thought was a very, yeah, very and interesting it, point. Yeah, and it's a simple and a very strong idea that we want to see them but, but no one's listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2003, the South African novelist J.M. Kurtzier won the Nobel Prize in Literature, the Swedish Academy describing him as a scrupulous doubter, ruthless in his criticism of the cruel rationalism and cosmetic morality of Western civilization. Kurtzier had already become the first author to win the Booker Prize twice for his novels The Life and Times of Michael Kay in 1983 and Disgrace in 1999, arguably the high point of his career. Since winning the Nobel, however, there's been a general recognition of what Claire Loudon in this week's paper calls a falling off for the casual reader. Aesthetic and literary preoccupations seem to have made way for philosophical ones, the late novels mired in ellipticality and mysticism. This development, argues Loudon, is a scholar's dream, precisely because of the opacity, the exponential proliferation of meanings, which is great if you're writing a Kurtzian monograph, and perhaps less so if literary enjoyment is what you're after. This week sees the release of Kurtzian's The Death of Jesus, the final instalment of a trilogy begun in 2013 with The Childhood of Jesus, and perhaps the most salient thing for anyone to know about this project is that it has nothing to do with Jesus. Or does it? And can any of us really know? Claire reviews the novel, surveys the trilogy and joins us on the line from Oxford to tell us more. Hello, Claire. Hi, Toby. And can you tell us more? We've got Jesus Christ, J.M. Kurtzier. What on earth is going on? It took me a long time to work out even some of the answer to that question as I was reading these novels. It's a very strange experience. I don't know when you read, if you put a line down the side of the page when it's a passage you want to return to. Or a question mark. Or a question mark, indeed. I felt like I was reading blind, um, reading almost as if I were reading a foreign language. It's Ben Lerner in his first novel, which is Leaving the Atocha Station, describes rather brilliantly the experience of existing in a country where you only kind of sort of know the language and, and trying to kind of wing it. And you're having conversations in this second language of yours. And you're really listening for intonation to tell you where the significance lies. Reading these novels initially was like that. I was putting lines down the side of the page where it sort of sounded like it might be significant and hoping that eventually I'd kind of find the little nugget that made it all hang together or I'd be able to go back and kind of put it all together. And did that happen? And well, no, there was definitely no eureka moment, which (laughs) I think might be partly the effect that he wants to create. Well, that, I guess that's I one, of the, one of the broader questions. Is, is this obfuscation you know, a sign of his great fecundity as a writer, or is it just a bit of a problem? For me, it's a problem. I wouldn't recommend these books to anybody, unless, that is, you're prepared to sit down with your Rubik's Cube or your Tangram puzzle, and that gives you great pleasure to kind of go at it and, and realise that there isn't any kind of fixed meaning you're going to draw from it. You can just sort of rearrange the pieces in various different ways. I think when people get pleasure from these books, that will be the pleasure they're getting. If you want something more coherent, then he's not for you anymore. <laughs> and was he once upon a time? I mean, do, do you think his earlier novels and the the, the the body of work that led up to the Nobel, do you think that sort of sits very differently? Yeah, I think it does. He's still not um, one of my favourite writers. He's still not a writer I'd ever been able to fall in love with. But they're so much more loose. And I think they're often saying quite similar things to what the trilogy is saying, and I'm not sure what's been gained by the obfuscation. Do, can you identify with the characters at all, or not really? I mean, there is a narrative, isn't there? There is a sort of storyline from what you say throughout these this trilogy of Jesus novels. Yes, there is a narrative. Well, I wouldn't call it a storyline, I'd call it a narrative. I think that's probably the right distinction. Okay, storyline um, too that, interesting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> 
it sounds slightly mad, and when you read it, it's slightly mad. Two characters, uh, one called Simon and one called David, arrive in a Spanish-speaking country. It's called the city is called Navilla, but you're not really sure where on earth you are in the world. You only know that they speak Spanish, and that Spanish is a new language to these two characters. Um, they're assigned ages, so they don't know how old they are. They don't know where they've come from. They've got no memories. And the man is, I think he's assigned the age of 47. And the boy is five, I think, in the first book. And they age as the trilogy progresses. So um, uh, the boy becomes six and then he becomes 10. I might have got those slightly wrong, but that's roughly it. Whereas the man, by the end of the third book, feels like he's 60. And they sort of represent, as far as the Bible is at all relevant, and I think it's only semi-relevant, um, Joseph and Jesus. And they go looking for a mother for the young boy. And they fix on a woman called Inez, who becomes his mother, even though there's no blood relation there. And so this funny sort of um, sort of strange version of Holy Family go wandering through these three novels. They have to leave the first city at the end of the first book because... The little boy, um, David, is he's unconventional in the way that he learns at school and the basically well-meaning socialist system that they live in in the villa. He doesn't fit into it and they want to send him off to a special school. So um, the parents, not wanting him to be forced into this slightly punitive sounding special school, decide to flee the um, city in the villa for a different city where they sort of live. Um, and they escape the census, which again makes you think of kind of bits of Bible stories. So the there Bible is, there is allegory there. There's a, there's a certain sort of allegory running through. Like everything in... I want to say now, perhaps there is, and perhaps I've just not managed to fit it together, but there are fragments of allegory. You keep holding bits of, of the Bible, for example, up to it and thinking, does this fit? Does this fit? And there's always a bit that doesn't fit. So any theory you hold up to it kind of falls short. And I, I think that's the intended effect. But like I say, it's possible that there is a theory that fits brilliantly and I've simply missed it. And what about the level of writing? I mean, you, you refer to a famous quotation from Martin Amos. He, he says that Kurtz's style is predicated on transmitting absolutely new pleasure. He's got no talent at all. Um, it's usual beating about the bush yeah. from Martin Amos. <laughs> yeah. um, is, is there any pleasure to be had? I mean, is there fun with you know, linguistic wordplay? I mean, there's, a, there's obviously a flatness to Kurtz's prose, which he's yeah. quite famous for, but he can be playful too. Is, is there play here? I think as far as there is play, it's very dry academic play it's not so, play so not academic. really play then <laughs> no i mean but for some people that's play i really did feel at the end of these three books they were just not written for me and it's i feel like i'm fairly catholic in my taste but this is just he's not really interested in, in writing for anything approaching the general reader i was just looking at the tls in the last 10 years there'd been more reviews of academic studies of kutze than there have been reviews of kutze's own books they're being produced at a at a kind of faster rate now it's a whole, mm. whole industry in wh- wh- where does it stand then on, on in terms of philosophy then you know so so it's not working for you particularly as a narrative or on the level of character or prose but as as philosophy how as philosophy it's really made me think it sent me back to kafka who i would rather reread than reread this i think they're interested in lots of the same things actually especially when it comes to time and the way that we think about time in or don't think about time the way that we take time and measure and number for granted and i think that's there in kutse from such an early early point when he's writing in um the life and times of michael k and um michael k is he's an almost saint-like figure that i think corresponds to the way that david ends up in the third book in the third book it's no spoiler david the jesus figure dies (laughs) And he dies a kind of saintly death, emaciated in a hospital bed. And it makes me think very much of Michael Kay when he's on the run in the life and times of Michael Kay from a sort of unspecified military force. And he's living 
off the land. He's eating almost nothing, just kind of insects and sticks and things and sort of sipping dew from leaves. And he achieves this kind of state of nirvana. And he discovers true idleness, which is not the idleness that is just kind of found between spots of work. It's like just all-consuming idleness. He talks about time flowing slowly like oil over the planet or over the, from horizon to horizon. I think that's at the heart of the philosophical discussion in the, in the trilogy as well. Although, as I say, it's much less lucid. And I don't understand why it had to be said over three books. That's another thing I'm really baffled by. <laughs> they're not, they're not massively long books, but yes, it, I, it, it does seem... <laughs> so do you think, do you think Claire, it's, it's a working out of ideas? And it's, it sounds as though it's a working out of ideas and it's not even interested, really. It's just trying to do a completely different thing than to get the story that grabs you or characters that affect you. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Absolutely right. And the amazing thing is that when Jesus dies, David dies at the end. He's a young boy and you've been with him for three books and you feel nothing. And that in itself is like, it's almost an achievement. Yes, I guess. You you sort of talk about how passionlessness is part of the book and it's it's exploration of passionlessness. So perhaps perhaps it relates to that. There's also a recurring motif in his work that you refer to and you open your piece rather brilliantly with an analysis of Kurtz's preoccupation with dogs <laughs> and I just yeah. wondered if you could say a little bit about that and what what that <laughs> says about him more widely as an author it says actually lots of things and there have de- been studies written on could says dogs could says animals he is really interested in animals and how we relate to them what they are what we are in relation to them how we are animals and and that's there throughout this trilogy and, and throughout his whole work. But for me, it's like a dog. It's He wants you to hear Kafka every time he says it, I think. He doesn't care that he's repeating himself. He's very, very, very clever. I'm sure he knows he does. It's not a kind of, he's not, he's not nothing happens in these novels by chance, I don't think. Everything is a choice. And when I say these novels, I mean his whole oeuvre. Of the, it seemed to me that, that, that with all the examples you gave of the dogs, they're all relentlessly negative. Is it people <laughs> yes. having an awful time, like a dog? There's never yeah, anything, absolutely. there's never any sense of that a dog might also feel joy or companionship or anything like that. That's absolutely right. I think that, that's, that's a kind of low point that he brings people to. Although, oddly, the dog at the end of um, the death of Jesus, or the dog throughout the Jesus trilogy, is a sort of, he's very much a character in his own right. He's called Bolivar, and he's initially very threatening, and then he's very loved, and then when he dies, he's very much missed. So do- the dog has got a real character in this trilogy. I think that's significant, but again, I'm not totally sure why. Sort of canine redemption, um, finally, yeah. after sort of 40 years of writing. Yes, and actually, in as far as there is any kind of resurrection, it's the dog, who may maybe the dog's the Holy Spirit, I'm not totally sure, but that is genuinely a possibility. <laughs> the dog goes missing at the end, and Simon goes out searching for the dog, and doesn't find the dog, but finds another dog, and sort of senses that perhaps the, the, the new dog is, is the old dog resurrected. Make of that what you will. <laughs> okay. Sounds pretty allegorical to me. Um, I think on that, uh, on that note, we can probably uh, <laughs> move on. But thank you so much for joining us, Claire. And it's a pleasure. Thanks, well, thanks I, for coming. W- whether or not listeners want to, to go to the trilogy now is up to them, but I'm, I'm not sure that I will. I can't say I'd recommend it. <laughs> bye, Toby. Bye. bye, Lucy. Bye-bye. I'm a big fan of Kurtz's earlier books. I totally love Youth, which he wrote earlier. I think it's 2004. Brilliant autobiographical work, uh, sort of semi-autobiographical work, and uh, yeah, and the Booker Prize winners, uh, both of them are excellent as well. So. I'm ashamed to say I don't think I've ever read a word. And since we've just done a pretty 
pretty comprehensive job of um <laughs> <laughs> read disgrace but disgrace no, yeah, is really we, good we're only talking about the most recent three aren't we for the purposes of balance <laughs> <laughs> this podcast believes that early cuts here is very very good there you have it Modernist poetry is rarely headline news, but you will have heard recently how a new cache of T.S. Eliot's letters has been unveiled at Princeton University to great and general excitement. Here to talk about this and what it means is Alan Jenkins, the TLS's deputy editor and poetry editor, and of course, a poet himself. Thanks for coming to talk this through with us, Alan. Um, Can you please explain why this is important and what the fuss is about? Uh, Well, these are the letters Eliot wrote to Emily Hale, the woman he fell in love with in his early 20s as a postgraduate student at Harvard. Either his feelings were unrequited or else Emily, a very proper young woman from Boston's upper crust, wasn't able to show him the encouragement he needed. He left America for England in 1914 to study at Oxford for a year. In London, he met Ezra Pound, who read his first great poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and immediately recognised him as the real thing. So instead of the future he had been contemplating, Eliot had been contemplating, uh, a safe academic future as a philosophy lecturer, he gambled everything on his talent, stayed in England and married an Englishwoman, Vivian Haywood, of course against his family's wishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the late 1920s, Emily and Eliot began corresponding and he wrote her 1,300 letters in the course of the next 25 years. They started seeing each other again in 1930 and pretty regularly after that they met in the US and in England. Eliot separated from his wife in 1933 and she died in an asylum, unfortunately, in 1947. In 1960, Eliot said that uh, though Vivian was nearly the death of him, she had kept the poet alive, whereas Emily would have killed the poet in him. That might have been for the benefit of his second wife, Valerie, whom he had married very happily in 1957. By that time, Emily had deposited Eliot's letters to her at Princeton, with the proviso that they could only be opened 50 years after Eliot's death or hers. Uh, And in the document Eliot wrote then, to be opened when the archive of letters was opened, he writes about his later feelings for Emily as a kind of self-deception, based on the memory of what he had felt as a young man, the love of a ghost for a ghost. And so, and so did, we, did we know that these letters were there waiting to be opened at some point? That, that's not a revelation. No, we knew the letters were there and we knew all the broad outlines of the relationship um, that he'd fallen for Emily at Harvard, that they'd re-established the connection in the late 20s and that she'd been tremendously important to him through the 30s. But it's the first time the letters have actually been available for any kind of inspection. So we can see what she meant to him or what he thought she meant to him and how their relationship developed or didn't develop. Um, unfortunately, he told a colleague to destroy her letters to him, so it's uh, all a bit one-sided. Yeah, so we're, so we're hearing we're hearing what he said to her. We are, which he did not want us to hear. He didn't want anyone to hear. Well, it's not clear that he absolutely didn't want anyone to hear it. I, I, I think he assumed that the letters would be kind of that there would be an interest in the letters because there was a lot of interest in him, and there was a lot of interest in his life. He had said he didn't want a biography to be written. I mean, he'd virtually sort of forbidden any. Any bargain, and certainly not an authorised biography. Mm. He told his widow, uh, his widow to be, as it were, Valerie, that he, she, he didn't want her to authorise anybody to write his biography. But I think he assumed the letters would be available, as it were, for academics, um, you know, for, for genuine researchers into his work. Mm-hmm. But he just didn't like the idea of them being deposited in '56 while everyone was still alive. Yes, uh, yes. And, okay. and and I think he thought that people might be able to get to see them before 
while uh, everybody was uh, while everybody was alive right. and, and before a, a you know kind of respectable period of time had had elapsed yeah and have they revealed anything interesting yet in particular about his work well yes many of them seem to have been written or at least the the, the relationship was re-established at the time of his deepest despair his poems the wasteland and the hollow men yeah. and, speak and despair, of that um, not least, you can't say exactly, can you? But uh, the, because of the very unhappy marriage, very largely to do with the very unhappy marriage. Yes, after the Hollow Men uh, in 1925 was published, he starts talking about himself as dead, and of having killed himself and his feelings. Um, but at that point, he experienced a sort of revelation or a revolution in his spiritual life. He was baptized into the Church of England in. 27, and he took a vow of chastity in 1928. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of turned his back on the sensual or sexual life, about which he had always been pretty tortured, to say the least, and he gave himself over to a kind of purgatorial renunciation, a life of renouncing the senses. As a very young man, uh, he had been fascinated by mysticism and had, had experiences of mystical ecstasy. So at one point, it seems he was even quite close to being becoming a Buddhist. Well, the Buddhist fire sermon, um, it bears very closely on mm. St. Augustine um, from, you know, from the Christian tradition, a cauldron of unholy love sang all about my ears. This kind of thing was very real to him. He saw himself as a soul undergoing the torments of the senses. Well, now his purgatory was more conventionally Christian, but um, in his struggle towards God, Emily seems to have been crucial. She was a figure of purity and love, um, or a love that was pure, untainted by fleshly desires and appetites. So this is, I think, probably the lady in his poem Ash Wednesday. He, he saw that poem as his own version of Dante's Vita Nuova. And in one letter from about 1930, which we have seen, or which has been made public, more or less, he says that Emily will understand the meaning of Ash Wednesday as no one else can. Now, in the poem, the lady is both a figure from Christian iconography, she's a Marian figure, the Blessed Virgin, and a real person seen in a dream vision, um, as Dante's Beatrice mm, was seen so, in a dream vision. So very much a muse. Very much a muse, uh, but more than that, a spiritual muse, yeah. a spiritual guide. A couple of years later, that is in 1933 or four, I think, they visited Burnt Norton, the house in Gloucestershire that gave its name to the, first, to, first of, <laughs> to the first of Eliot's four quartets, the, yeah. the great last, the great poem of his later years. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden, etc. And there's the vision of the lotus rising in the dried pool. Now, Emily seems to have been part of all that, and he says, again, the poem is a kind of love poem to her. To bring Dante back in again briefly, and after he was the most important poet in the second half of Eliot's life, Dante distinguishes between natural love and love of the mind. I think that what Eliot felt for Emily was almost certainly the latter, the love of the mind. But she was crucial in showing him that he at least could still feel, or feel something that wasn't horror and mm. despair. In other words, she was fantastically important, because there doesn't seem to have been anyone else in his life for his feelings and imagination to play on like that. So That she was the sort of the positive figure, Absolutely. as it was. Yes. She, she yes, kind yes, of absolutely. like a repository uh, for all the good, yeah. aspirational... Completely. Yeah. A, re- a redemptive figure. The, f- yeah. the, the figure who could lead him towards redemption, who could redeem the time, redeem the vision in the higher dream, as he puts it in Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. The higher dream as opposed to the, the sort of base and sinful life he had been, he thought he'd been leading up to that point. Right, okay. So so in a way, yeah, so she redeems him of the pain of the of, of everything that's gone before as well. The sin, really. He, he said, he was quite explicit about this and quite unequivocally, he said, life begins when you recognise that you're in a state of sin. Right. When he recognised sin. 
Okay. And he meant original sin, I think, yeah. quite explicitly. Um, and with all this, the, the, there's a lot of sort of chat about <laughs> it. Is it high-toned literary gossip? <laughs> is it speculation Certainly about the... Pri- very, very, <laughs> very high-toned. Very, very high-toned. High is it speculation about um, the private life and affections well, yeah. of a public poet, in, or is it... Inevitably, it's a, a, a bit of both. Yeah. Um, not gossip, exactly, I hope, even high-toned gossip. These are, after all, the letters of a great poet, um, and they almost certainly have important things to tell us about his life and emotions. So they're bound to bear on how we read his poems, uh, to some extent, as well. All the recent biographies have recognised the importance um, that Emily had in this great poet's life and emotions, but they haven't been able to tell us exactly what part she played or what that importance really was. From the little that has already come out, I think it seems Lyndall Gordon in Eliot's new life back in the 1980s seems to have been onto something, at least where Emily was concerned. But as she herself uh, has been at pains to point out in the last few days, all that is still a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation, uh, at least until we've actually seen more of the letters themselves. Because it's no basically there are scholars at the archives now. There are scholars at the archive, even as we speak, going through... Reading th- through them, going, wow! <laughs> sit, sit, sitting at three terminals, I think, or leafing through some scans, um, some photocopies. And, yeah. and how will so this information be released? Is it going to be sort of drip-fed to us over the next few weeks I or imagine, months? Well, it's already little bits and pieces... Snippets have been coming out. I imagine it will be drip-fed to us, as you say, and then eventually there will be either... I'm not quite sure how the letters will be published. I mean, I'm sure they will be published. John Haffenden, who's the general editor of the you know, now eight volumes of the letters of T.S. Eliot, uh, obviously will want to bring these to the public as well. Whether they'll be... I imagine it'll have to be a separate volume. That'll take a while. It'll, well, it'll yeah. take a while. I don't think it'll yeah. come for you know ten years at least, but and I, it'll have to be a separate volume. I know that Robert Crawford, who published the first volume of his new biography of Eliot a couple of years ago, to three years ago possibly, it has been waiting for these letters to be opened so that he can include you know, his understanding of them in the right. second volume, i.e. the second half of Eliot's life. And will we be hearing about them in the TLS before 10 years <laughs> is you up? Will, you, will, you will. A very fine young poet and an Eliot scholar is, I think, any moment flying to Princeton to have a look at them and we'll be writing about them for us. Brilliant. Thank you for Exciting. Um, talking to us about it. Thank you. Thanks. Moving seamlessly from one poet to another, we'll finish the show today with a reading of a poem in the paper this week by Geoffrey Wainwright, who joins us on the line. Geoffrey, hello, and thank you for talking to us. Hello. Your poem is called If All This Did Begin. Could we call it speculative? Would that be a fair description? Speculative, yes, it is. It's it's an ideas poem, really, I think. And are these ideas that have been brewing for, for a while, or was it a particular response to something... No, I think that there are ideas that are brewing for a while. I found it quite a hard poem to write, actually, because I couldn't get the um, I couldn't get the ideas clear enough. Um, I don't know whether I have. Well, um, we think you have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Let's hear the poem, Geoffrey. If all this did begin, how beautiful our blue marbled planet from afar, and so serene, so steady as she goes. Escape velocity nicely tailored to permit philately, football, and sails of work. The lizard's silence is not a prayer, but is a stratagem. Likewise, warbling of every suit, a chameleon ambush 
the stoat's removal of her kits, the finery of meadow grass. The card sharp of the riverboat saloon begets descendants, further connoisseurs of the shortest odds, then a diligent cashier, perhaps an ever-optimistic therapist. If all this did begin, how might it go on? What understanding, as differently abled as a cat or whale, might yet recognise a willing purpose and a gracious end? That was Geoffrey Wainwright reading If All This Did Begin. Many thanks, Geoffrey. Thank you. I wish we could end with that question hanging in the air, but we need to say thank you to Claire Loudon, Sanam Maher, Alan Jenkins and Geoffrey Wainwright. And to tell you about next week's paper, we'll be celebrating the bicentenary of Anne Bronte's birth and looking at the French Revolution, though, of course, it is still too early to tell. And Toby, what delights will we have on the fiction pages next week? We've got an Irish special, so we've got a, um, a survey of the work of the, uh, the Irish literary stalwart uh, Benedict Keeley uh, and then a, a piece on a new translation by another uh, Irish author called Martin O'Kane and then a piece on a new novel by the young Irish author Rob Doyle and um, hearing Geoffrey Waymart's poem I, I started wondering whether he, he managed to pack more meaning into that than Curtsy did across his whole trilogy so it was absolutely beautiful but... <laughs> it was really beautiful but I think we've had enough of a go at Curtsy for have. one week we don't you have. think yes, yes. <laughs> Stig and Thea will be back with you next week thanks very much for listening from Toby and from me goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.